Yeah, real people, real stories. This is what we know well. Yeah, this is our truth today with Farron DeBell. Time to get it started quick, not just here for gossiping. Everything from entertainment, even talking politics. This for everybody at the gym or working steady. For your sister, brother, rabbi, even for your granny. Our truth today, trust you don't want to miss it. Real people, real stories. Come through and take a listen. Yeah, follow on IG at our truth today. Yeah. Nearly half a million children are in the foster care system in the United States, and more than 100,000 adoptions occur each year. For children of color, three in four are adopted by white families. I spoke with Michelle Hughes, an expert with 25-plus years of experience in transracial adoptions, about what to expect when adopting a child of a different race or cultural background. Thanks so much for joining us today on this important topic, Michelle. It's my pleasure to be here today. Let's start simple. What are transracial adoptions? Transracial adoption means when a family of one race adopts a child or children of another race. The reality is that's usually white families adopting kids of color. However, recently you will see an increase in the number of families of color who are adopting white children or adopting children of color but a different race than what they are themselves. The majority of transracial adoption is white families adopting kids of color. There's a nearly 10-year-old study from NYU that suggested white parents in America, gay or straight, have a strong preference for white girls. It seems like there's this idea that black families are few and far between and white families need to step up or we'd have a society of brown orphans. It's just inaccurate, actually. I find that there are lots of families of color who wish to adopt but they run up against obstacles. I see in my courtroom in Cook County that probably somewhere between 40 and 60% of the adoptions are actually people of color adopting kids of color. So I have a hard time believing that it's difficult to find foster parents of color who wish to adopt children. Are there any kids for whom it may be hard to find a home? If you're talking to the general public, hard to place children never means newborns. I don't care what race the newborn is, what drug exposure the newborn may have, even a lot of medical conditions. No newborn is actually that difficult to place. Yes, there are some children that may take a little longer than others, but when we're talking a little longer than others, with newborns, you're usually talking a matter of days. The children that are truly harder to place are older children. And even with older children, you will find families that prefer older children for a variety of reasons. The most difficult children to place are older children who have experienced lots of trauma and exhibit that trauma in behavioral ways that they are difficult to deal with because they will possibly impact the safety of the household. And Title IV-B of the U.S. Multi-Ethnic Placement Act requires that states provide for a diligent recruitment of parents that reflect the race and culture of children awaiting placement. Does this happen? Clearly, the adoption agencies do not market to communities of color. They don't know how to find these families, and often these families struggle in connecting with these agencies. And then when they do connect with agencies, too often they run into microaggressions, sometimes overt racism, but more often that subtle racism that can really rub them the wrong way and makes the process more difficult. It's a sobering topic. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk with Mark Hagland, a Korean-born man who was adopted by white Americans, and a biracial black man 
was adopted by a white family in the States. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on ConversationsWith.next. Good morning, Uglyville! Every ugly doll is unique. I'm Moxie. Bobo. Wait. Those close to me call me Slick Doll. Which is not his name. And every child is, too. They can be pretty lovable. That's why when you travel, you should make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size. That sounds pretty great to me. Keep them safe by visiting NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Isn't that right, gibberish cat? (laughs) Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.Net. And we're back. You're listening to Our Truth Today. I'm Farron DeBell. I had a chance to grab some Indian food with Mark Hagland, a South Korean adoptee. So, Mark, tell us your adoption story. Sure. So, I was born in South Korea in October 1960. I was adopted along with my twin brother to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we came over when we were eight months old. We were raised by white parents of Norwegian and German-American backgrounds. So my father knew a Norwegian missionary from Norway who was doing missionary work in South Korea after the Korean War. And that's how they heard about us, or I mean heard, heard about the possibility of adopting from Korea. That was the first opportunity for most people to adopt internationally. And it was always difficult uh, to get an infant child in the United States. What did your adoptive parents do particularly well? I think what they did really well was understanding that they would have to prepare us to be different. I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know that I was Asian and Korean and adopted. A lot of adoptees sadly find out they are of a different race from their parents when they enter school or preschool and it's pointed out to them and their parents have actually not explained race to them. So 50, 60 years ago, how did your parents know that they needed to do that? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't, but somehow they did. You have a child of your own now. How has your transracial adoption kind of impacted the way you raise kids? Oh, very fundamentally. So my daughter is multiracial. She's a beautiful combination of several races. I knew from the very beginning that I would have to prepare her for navigating the world with a multiracial identity. So I started very, very young explaining race to her and how she had different elements in her identity from her mother and from myself. And then later on, I started to explain what racism and white privilege were. And she's great. She's a year away from college and is uh, pretty woke for a teenager. She, she gets it. Excellent. And you have several intersectionalities. Uh, what, which of those kind of impact you the most in your daily life and, and, uh, and growing up? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it depends on what day you ask <laughs> and the context. I, I carry my face with me everywhere. So being a gay man has uh, a lot of impact on me, but moment to moment, being a person of color has much more because that's how people see me. You are uh, someone who has given back a lot to the community, and one of the ways you've been doing that is with advocacy on Facebook and other areas. Can you tell us about some of your support that you offer on Facebook? 
Yes, I have co-created and helped moderate with others um, several groups around transracial adoption. And the purpose of the groups is to support adult transracial adoptees in their journeys and to help transracially adoptive parents in their journeys uh, to more effectively parent their children. How long have the group's been around? About five years altogether. What is maybe one really big aha moment that you think most parents finally get after being in the groups? It was hard to figure out how to respond when white parents would say, you know, my child of color is only four years old and I don't want to ruin their innocence by explaining about racism to them. I want them to stay innocent and happy. I say, imagine if you had a little daughter named Susie who was three years old and you said to your friends, well, I am so afraid to traumatize my daughter by explaining to her about traffic safety and that she could be harmed, so I'm just going to let her run into traffic and be crushed by a car. And then when she's lying in the ICU with all her bones broken, I'm going to pull up a chair and we'll have a nice conversation about traffic safety. That's basically what racism is like. It would be far better for your child not to have the experience I had, which is a profoundly traumatizing experience of racism as a first experience without any preparation. And when I tell my traffic safety story, the white parents all say, aha. I've spent some time in one of your groups uh, over the last month or so and found much of it enlightening. And one story kind of struck me with a Jewish woman who was uh, asking about support for having a, a black child. Um, and then others came in and gave her that information, but also started giving her some resources on what she might need to consider raising a black Jew, and she wasn't interested in that. Do you see that a lot, where people get more information than they bargained for? We get pushback sometimes. We get resistance. I fully understand that most white people raised in white culture find it very difficult to process some of the concepts we talk about, but the ones who are willing to sit in discomfort, as I like to say, for the sake of their children of color, will do the best. And we talked about that a little bit before the interview. You were talking about many of the parents who need to be in these groups the most uh, aren't. Um, so what happens to those kids whose parents have chosen not to learn about any of this? Well, what's really sad to me is that here we are in 2019, and there are children who are having the experiences I had in the early 1960s. The difference between then and now is my parents, who were very emotionally intelligent people, um, figured a lot out on their own with zero resources. Now we have books, blogs, articles, documentaries, films, People can join these online groups or they can go to conferences or camps. It's amazing what's available to them. So what's sad to me is that there are parents who are potentially making the mistakes that were made 50 years ago when they don't have to be. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for taking time out for us today. It's been really wonderful. Thank you for talk. No problem. I'm Farron DeBell. You're listening to Our Truth Today. Later in the show, hear advice from Michelle Hughes, transracial adoption expert, on ways parents who do choose transracial adoption can better prepare for their new family. Coming up on Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell.
there are some amazing transracial adoptive families out there. However, I don't think everybody should be doing it. I have met far too many adult transracial adoptees in my life where their parents refused to do the work and they were the ones that were left with the trauma. Medical marijuana is seen by many in the health field and by patients with ailments such as cancer and IBS as one of the only remedies that works. Kathy Brandt, founder of the KB Group, wrote the guidelines for health practitioners on palliative care and she also lives with painful IBS and cancer. Medical marijuana is part of a palliative care plan and should be part of a palliative care plan. There are patients who are taking it now. I would say, I hope, most of the people taking medical marijuana actually have a medical problem that is addressed by the marijuana, and it really does help. Brandt told KHN that currently, medical professionals are prohibited from giving advice, and that needs to change. Brandt said professionals in palliative care need to consider the use as part of the care plan. Basically, the only people who are advising you, they're people who work at a dispensary. They're not medical professionals. For Our Truth Today Health News, I'm Tyra Deal. Ballin' like I'm Westbrook, all the hosey on me, TCFMG. We're joined today on Our truth Today by Boss Dre, a young up-and-coming rap artist from Chicago. Welcome, Boss Dre. What's up, man? What's up, Westbrook? We're hearing a little bit of Ballin' Like Westbrook. What's that all about? It's me feeling like um, I'm the MVP, like I'm important. Came to ball, time to eat. Time to eat. What you gonna eat? Um, whole lot of steak. <laughs> whatever you want, right? Yeah, whatever. All right. What kind of inspires you to write? My son, true life. I just be feeling like it's for me. Like, I get an itch. Like, that's my thing. I just got to go with it. How long that been going on? Probably since I was about 14, 15. If I really want something out of this, I got to put my all into it. And if this is what I want to do, I can't have to do it. So, my foot down, take care of the family, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh. And you're from Chicago, some college Chirac. When people think of Chicago these days, they don't think of some of the country's best schools or where they can see four of the top ten tallest buildings or home with Chance the Rapper, Oprah Obama. Today they're thinking about uh, corrupt cops, gun violence, and gangs. Uh, what, what's your Chicago like? I mean, yeah, it's, it's all that too, but my Chicago, like, me, I just stay out the way. I mean, if you mind your business, you'd be good out here. So I call home. And you're, you talked about your son, you're a new dad. How'd that change you? I'm going me a lot because my life ain't the same no more. So every day I wake up, I got to do it for my son and just do it for me. And you got a show tonight, June 30th. If people are listening to this as it premieres, they might still be able to make it. Check it out on Afton Shows at aftonshows.com and search for Boss Dre. That's all one word, D-O-S-S-D-R-E. Or visit our site at Our Truth Today for a link. You can hit him up on social media. Best of luck and thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on ConversationsWith.net. Fancy dance, 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 fancy
Eric Lemmy is a biracial man and part of a transracial adoption. Good evening, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Hi, how you doing? You're a biracial black man, adopted by a white family in the 70s. Tell us about growing up. It's a little bit strange for me, but I did have a little bit of a culture of other biracial kids growing up with white families. So I had a little bit of a, a support system, I don't would say, but I wasn't the only one. So kind of was a little bit easier to deal with, but still, same time, had a lot of questions about where my where my biological parents were and why I was giving up. And it's probably the hardest thing, just questions I had, not having answers. What kind of answers did your adoptive parents give? They had told me that I was from a big family. My mother was too young and they wouldn't, they weren't going to allow her to keep me. They didn't really know a lot of information. Uh, I guess when they were at the adoption agency, the lady kind of left the file open and said she was going to get coffee. And they kind of tried to see as much information, read as much as they could before she came back. They didn't have a lot of answers either, but they were always supportive of searching and or helping me find out those answers. What kind of role did discussions of race play in your upbringing? My parents were very, you know, they're both Ivy League educated. You know, there wasn't any anything about race. They raised me as they did my, my white brother. I got everything I could ask for or need. What did you learn about your black heritage? As I grew older and learned more about black culture, it was a bit strange. I never really bonded with my black culture. It was mostly white or interracial. So that was more of a, I want to say a negative thing, but it just wasn't normal. We grew up at least part of the time in the same area of the country. I know I experienced several issues of overt racist actions against me. Did you experience any of that growing up? Not in, in my town so much, but going to other places, Kentucky, things were, you know, served niggas. And with my family, they were very firm on addressing that. But the people who, who, you know, were ignorant enough to say things like that, they always made it known that that was just ignorant people. That was probably the biggest thing is just having that set into my face, you know, as I was a kid in front of my family. Did you know what it meant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah six, seven years old. You just you learn about it on the, the playground. What are a couple of things your parents did really well? Show me love and support. Just give me a well-rounded upbringing of morals and showing love and giving love and looking out for the, the little guy. What do you think they could have done or should have done differently? Looking back at it, I think they at times gave me too much as a, as a way to compensate for just dealing with who I was and where I fit in in the world and was more detrimental to me than supportive or, or healthy. So your birth mother is white and your birth father black. Do you suppose that makes your experience different than a monoracial child adopted by a white family? Like, I don't know. One half of me or part of me kind of fit somewhere. Yeah, I guess yeah, from that point of view, definitely, it would definitely be different if I was just all black. What advice would you give to transracial adoptive parents? Be strong and show your kids love and support and, you know, be there for them just like you would any other kid. It's just the only other aspect of it would be, you know, because the black side of it, if you'd be supportive if they were interested in learning that, then definitely be supportive of, the, of, the, of them getting the information and, and learning of that side of them. Well, Eric, I wish you well, and thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Our truth today, news, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice, visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.Net. And next time on Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. I talked with Anjali Bidani, a former stage manager for Wicked, later a finance executive, and now giving it all up to pursue her passion for psychology. 
I am a born in USA, Indian American. Mother used to sing on the radio. And when she met my father, he had come to the United States because he felt like rich Indian people didn't care about poor Indian people. The only people in India who cared about poor Indian people were the white missionaries. And my father, that didn't sit well with him. So he decided to try a new country. <laughs> a lot of my teachers didn't like me, which now that I have a second grader, like my second grade teacher, I remember she really did not like me. I don't even know why. There's no real reason. I was a quiet kid, which makes sense if you're not if you stick out already, you're like, I'm going to take the temperature of this room. In the first grade, I remember my first, the first friend I thought was, who I thought was my friend, I asked her to come over to my house and she said, my mom won't let me. And I remember not understanding. And I have had two careers so far, so I'm starting a third one soon. Uh, uh, I was a stage manager in theater for 10 years and then I worked in finance for 11 years. We were living, losing a second stage manager. And there was a woman in town who had already been a sub, like knew how to call the show, knew all, knew everybody. And I was, I was, she should get the job of that second assistant. And he decided to hire a guy he'd worked with before who had to move from New York to Chicago, who didn't know the show. And like, I'd worked with him before. And I'm like, are you kidding? He's not that good. Like, and I think, I looking back, I'm like, oh, Another instance of like not giving the right person the job, but he wanted somebody who was going to like not question him at all, right? We're back with Our Truth Today. Just a reminder that if you're listening to us live, you can join in our live discussion with some of our guests on Facebook. Just go to live.ourtruth.today. That's live.ourtruth.today to be connected to the live discussion on Sunday, June 30th from 7 until 8 p.m. Central Time. Now we're back with Michelle M. Hughes, attorney and one of the founders of Bridge Communications, a company that works with both individuals and organizations to teach the concepts of diversity and inclusion. And Michelle has been working with monoracial and transracial adoptions for nearly 30 years. Michelle, I've sometimes heard white adoptive parents say, I don't see color or I'll love the child no matter their color. Thoughts? Part of our identity in this society is our race. Part of our identity in the society is our color, is our gender, and to ignore that these things exist and pretend it's all one and the same is to erase part of the identity of the child. And it's never a good thing to erase part of people's identity. We want to respect their identity no matter what their identity is. And how about folks who have reflected and, and understand white privilege in America, but they may have close family or friends who haven't done that self-reflection? Advice to them? It's not fair to the child not to have someone in their corner to advocate for them as a child of color in a world with these issues of racism and white supremacy. It's great to be a loving parent. That's fabulous. Every parent should be loving and should be supportive of their child. But with transracial adoption, there's more that they have to address. And if they're not willing to address it, then this may not be the right way to build their family. Michelle, what resources should prospective parents look to? There are several Facebook groups that I think are really great for training grounds for transracially adoptive parents to be. There is also numerous adoptee 
autobiographies that you can learn a lot from. And then there are classes. Bridge Communications, a company I co-founded with a transracial adult adoptee, does classes for a variety of different agencies, camps, and we're just one of the players out there that do education. I can't emphasize enough education, education, education. I think the more that parents learn before the child arrives, the easier the process will be. Also, they really need to connect with other families like their family. We've talked a lot about white parents and non-white children. You said it's rare, but what are the challenges for parents of color adopting white children or a child of a different race? Parents of color who adopt transracially have different challenges than white parents. Often that's because it's pretty difficult to live in our society and not know a lot about white people. White people is the norm, and therefore when they adopt a white child, generally they know quite a bit about the norm. There are obviously things that they won't know, and they may have never dealt with a white child's hair, for example, but they generally know the community standards. They find the challenge to be more how society reacts towards them. Often they get challenged by white people, how did they get a white kid, as if they somehow are not worthy of parenting a white child and that that white child was supposed to go to a white family and that society has somehow been wronged by people of color getting this white child. On the other hand, they often get challenged by people of color because there are so many kids of color in the system or even domestic infant adoption that need to be adopted and people of color will challenge them well why did you get a child of color why would you adopt a white child so they get hostility from their own people with regards to adopting a kid like them but it's based on statistical stuff and how many kids are available, where, yes, white parents who adopt across racial lines may also get some hostility, but it's not because there are so many white kids available. Part of the reason that you find white parents adopting kids of color is because there aren't as many white babies available as there were in the past. What advice would you give to prospective adoptive parents about transracial adoptions, and how long should people prepare? So the opportunity to find resources is very easy, frankly. The thing that is difficult is to be able to ascertain are those good resources or not, because many prospective transracial adoptive parents like to be in a comfortable setting and they don't like to be challenged on some of their long-held beliefs on race or adoption. That's why it's imperative that prospective transracial adoptive parents listen to the voice of adoptees, listen to the voice of transracial adoptees, and listen to the voice of people of color because those are the sources that are going to give you information that are going to challenge you and make you a better parent in the long term. That's not to say that you shouldn't look listen to other adoptive parents or people of your race, but they will not always be the ones that challenge you to the extent that you need to be challenged in order to make sure that this child gets everything they need to survive in a society that is based on white supremacy. So you've done your homework. You decide to move forward with a transracial adoption. What are the steps and are there different avenues to adoption? 
Actually, for the most part, adopting transracially and adopting same race, the process is exactly the same. Maybe your agency will require that you take a class, and sadly, many agencies don't require any type of education. But the actual process, whether you're going through child welfare or domestic infant adoption, is the same regardless if you're doing transracial or same race. You're going to get your home study. You're going to be investigated. You're going to be either approved or not approved. And then you're going to have to wait. Then the child gets in your home. There's generally post-placement. And then eventually the adoption will be finalized and you are the parents and you have all the challenges and joys and everything that comes with being adoptive parents and the opportunity to raise this child to be an amazing adult in the world that will do great things. Michelle, you've been a wealth of information. Thanks for being with us today on Our Truth Today. Thank you for having me here today. Of course, we just touched the surface of this topic, but it was great to get the discussion going. Thanks again. We're coming down to the end of our first episode. Again, if you're listening to us live, you can join the discussion in just a few minutes at live.ourtruth.today, and you'll be connected to our live discussion with guests on Facebook. Our staff and guests put a lot of work into this episode, and we hope you enjoyed. If you want to show your gratitude, just recommend us to a friend, like our Facebook page, and give us a five-star review on iTunes so more people can hear our work. We have new episodes every week. Find us on your favorite podcast provider or just go to listen.ourtruth.today. In the coming weeks, hear about female entrepreneurs, those who decided to forget the glass ceiling and build their own structures, accessing mental health in minority communities, immigration, what you can do to help, and a new look at Illinois the country's most progressive state? That's it for this episode. Join us next week on Our Truth Today for more real people, real stories. Opinions expressed are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the show's producers, hosts, or advertisers. Certain reporting comes from KHN. Kaiser Health News is a nonprofit news service covering health issues. It is an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente.